there's nothing that these people are ever going to do that makes me think it's no longer worth it to fight. And that's something I guess I should thank Texas for, because you want to talk about making a person really resilient, watching the Texas legislature work has just made me realize that as long as I can, I've got to be out here doing the work and fighting the fight for the people who can't, who don't have the time, who don't have the resources, who don't have the opportunity, who are too busy just trying to make a wage and feed their children. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Sonia Van Meter, the managing partner of an opposition research firm that works for Democratic political candidates at all levels of government, has an interesting story about how she came to join the firm and ultimately take charge of it. So we had a good conversation about the business of opposition research and how that fits in politically these days. It's a good episode. You should listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Sonia Van Meter of Stanford Campaigns. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Sonia, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? My name is Sonia Van Meter. I am the managing partner of Stanford Campaigns. We are a democratic opposition research company working nationally. I am also the founder and executive director of FTC PAC, which stands for For Texas Change or Fire Ted Cruz, depending on your proclivities. We are um, a super PAC uh, with the intent of getting Ted Cruz out of office. Sounds like a good place to have put yourself, that <laughs> combination of activities. Do you mind telling me where you grew up and what kind of family? Sure. So I grew up primarily in the burbs of Boston and then Atlanta. My mother and father met in Boston. That's where we started our adventure. And then we moved down to the burbs of Atlanta when I was in middle school. Um, I went to three different colleges in the Atlanta area and sort of gravitated toward uh, a degree in sociology. What did your parents do that, that they were meeting in Boston? <laughs> That's a fascinating question, actually. Uh, my mother was working as a travel agent. My father was working as a musician at the time. Quite honestly, I'm not sure how those two ended up in Boston. My father is originally from rural Arkansas. My mother was born in Miami to the daughter of Honduran immigrants. And um, it's I'm still kind of shocked to this day that they even crossed paths. Yeah. You started to talk about a lot of colleges. Was education an important thing to them? How did that become an important road for you? There were just so many examples of it in, in my family. My father went to college. His four older sisters went to college. Both of my grandmothers attended college. These are women that were born in the 19-teens. So 
Um, I think it was just sort of always assumed. Um, and it always sounded fun to me, you know, not going to lie, like having the opportunity to run off away from home, you know, live in a place that I don't answer to my parents and be afforded an opportunity to kind of explore various interests. I think, yeah, it was just, I think it was probably always something that I was, I was going to do, but I never felt pressured to do it. Was the family political at home or did you become political in college or did that all come later? I don't think my parents were overtly political at all. I honestly couldn't tell you who either of my parents voted for um, before I went to college, but I did follow in my mother's footsteps. My mother went to a women's college and I'm not sure if this was an accident or by design. The women's college that I attended was very progressive and very, very feminist. What was that? The Agnes Scott College in Decatur, Georgia. Very feminist, very progressive. And um, one of the first organizations on campus that I took note of was a pro-choice organization. And they were always having envelope stuffing party, stuffing parties and lit and stamp licking parties um, to get you know the news out about you know legislation and things that were going on. I think it probably started there. I read, I believe, that you were headed to University of Texas Austin for graduate work. Is that right? Indeed. You, you, mm-hmm. you majored in sociology. and Was it going to be in sociology, the graduate work, or what was that? It was. That was exactly it. I got to the end of a very, very long undergrad career um, and realized that I had this degree that I really enjoyed pursuing, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. So I thought, hey, let's just, let's just keep riding this train. So UT Austin had one of the highest ranked programs for both political sociology and Eastern European Eurasian studies, which is sort of the magical focal point of my interests. I did a whole year in the program before realizing I had absolutely no business in academia. Maybe this is the result of going to this very progressive undergraduate school. I didn't want the rest of my career to be purely academic. Um, it's not that I didn't value the research or the work. I did very, very much. I just didn't want the only other people to ever read my research to be other researchers. I wanted to have more of an impact with my career. You must be quicker than me because I think I, I was four years before I abandoned my uh, graduate work. So I, I commend you for that. What was your work in? I, I was in, in political science. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, so wait a minute. Now I'm dying to know, like, why, why did you finally decide to walk away from that? I mean, I mean, I, I applaud the decision. It's a hard thing to walk away from a graduate program. It is. I guess it is. Well, it was a combination of things. I had met my wife to be at that program and she was headed to DC or had already headed and Beyond that, I think I didn't want the the life that I saw in the department. More than that, I didn't think I was the right fit for it. Like I, I thought that the, a lot of the professors that I got to know were doing good work and were interesting people and smart, but it didn't seem like I would be long-term happy with that. And also didn't know what the hell to write a dissertation on. You have to have sort of a, an, a, a laser-like focus on uh on your area of interest. And truth be told, I'm not sure um, I would have fit in very well. I just, I just knew that I wasn't especially good at the focusing. And then I, I started a company and that went well and my life went in a different direction. What was your path to becoming part of a company, being an oh, employee and then I guess managing director over time? 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I married into it quite simply. So after graduate school, I didn't really know what to do. And I was living in Austin, Texas, um, which is a lovely, lovely place to spend your 20s. But also, um, at least during the time that I was there, it was sort of an easy city to kind of just lose yourself into inertia. And I went back to what I had done during college. I went back to bartending and cocktailing and ultimately realized that I could lose 10 years of my life doing that, which, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I just, I wanted to do something else. So there came a point when I decided that I was going to move to San Francisco to be near to some family that I had out there. And I was waiting for my lease to run out. And of course, that's when I met the man who would become my husband. And he was already an established political consultant. He had his own shop. He had founded it back in the late 90s. He had started out as a journalist and then did some time in Moscow as an expat journalist, came back to the States and immediately got a job working for the Ann Richards re-election campaign. And that was uh, his first foray into what I now know to be opposition research. Um, so after that campaign, he he hung his own shingle and started a company and about the time that we got engaged, I was, I was really looking to, to transition, you know, like I needed to get out of, out of hospitality. And I'd been doing some sort of side work for a burgeoning social media blog that went absolutely nowhere. But, uh, you know, he said, listen, I need someone to come help me run my company. Why don't you just come work with me? And I thought, gee, what a fantastic way to doom my marriage from jump. Let me come and work for my husband. I can think of far, far more auspicious beginnings. Um, but here we are almost 14 years later, and we're still very happy. So clearly we did something right. Um, but yeah, I, I joined his team sort of as an office manager. And, you know, it was great because I realized he really didn't have any interest in running his company. He really had no interest in telling me how to do my job, which was funny because I'd never run anything before. I'm very much just figuring it out as I went along. But it turns out I kind of had a knack for it. You know, I, I learned on the fly got some very interesting trial by fire training. But over the next several years, I got pretty good at it. When you joined, how how many people were working there? Oh, uh, so Stanford Campaigns has ranged in staff. Like we ebb and flow depending on where we are in the cycle and how things are going. There have been times when we were only four people. There have been times when we've been as many as 12 people. So at the time, I think we were probably around, you know, six or seven people. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was fun. I was learning the industry. I had never worked professionally for a campaign before. So it was, it was a lot of learning as I go. And then over time, uh, eventually my husband who had been doing opposition research for the better part of two decades decided he was bored and needed to go do something else. And I said, that's fantastic because you're really, really expensive. If you leave, I can hire two more people and we can double our business, <laughs> which is I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, kind of what, what happened. He went on to go work for Planned Parenthood National uh, in DC. And you know it was an easy transition moving a political consulting company to Washington, DC. It was great. We made inroads with a lot of democratic institutions, a lot of the committees. Ultimately, we came back to Texas after only a year. It was a really, really fantastic year for, for both of us professionally. So, Can you tell me a little bit about the, the business of opposition research? I have talked to lots of political consultants over the 900-some interviews I've done, but not too many opposition researchers. One person who did technology in that space, a person or two at American Bridge who are also... Uh, part of the the ecosystem, but what do you do at Stanford, and and who else is in in that world? Sure. 
So if we're talking about opposition research as a profession, the funny thing is I don't actually do the research. I didn't come up that way. I'm, I'm certainly capable of doing it, but I'm not especially well suited for it. What I am well suited for is networking, selling, making sure our clients are happy, making sure they have what they need, interpreting the research that we do, advising candidates on how to use it efficiently and effectively. But the business of opposition research, of actually collecting records, putting together a narrative, helping with the storytelling, really sharpening and honing negative attacks. I learn about that every day, particularly as, as landscapes, political landscapes change as races change, as things like social media come along and really blow the doors off what you know opposition research used to be. When my firm was first founded, you know, social media wasn't a thing. You know, people didn't have cameras on their phones. We were still typing out books and printing them and mailing them to people. We've come a very, very long way in terms of our processes. But uh, something that I've, I've been talking about a lot recently is that so much of oppo these days is about finding everything that you can on a particular target within a certain amount of, of time. And the longer that people are alive and the more that they, the more they accomplish over their careers, the more opportunity there is for us to build negative narratives, which is the whole ballgame, right? And then you throw in stuff like social media where people are, are very comfortable, you know, talking freely about who they are and what they value. And I mean, think about how much has changed since don't ask, don't tell and the Supreme Court ruling Obergefell. Once upon a time, simply saying, I don't mind if you're gay, but I need you to keep it quiet you know, that was once a very, very progressive position. And nowadays, it's simply not accepted on, on the left anymore. Um, so one of the things that I've really come to see is, you know, as things change, and as time passes, and as uh, people's opinions about various subjects evolve, so much of what we do is not about finding the thing that you did and preparing a response to it. It's about helping you understand that you are in fact fallible. There are absolutely going to be mistakes in your past. We may or may not find all of them, but this is how you handle it when someone presents you with it. And something that's been, I think, very interesting, uh, particularly since the beginning of, of Trump's first presidential campaign, is that <laughs> you can't really shame a person if they don't have shame. And that's kind of how negative attacks work. There are certain people in professional politics now who, you know, it doesn't matter what comes out of their mouth. They're never going to apologize. I think of people like Matt Gates, of Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert. And forgive me, I know these are all Republicans, but. Well, that's the same team I'm on and the same team that I'm interested in. So, <laughs> OK, all right. That's, yeah. I, I, I suspect that there's a shameless Democrat or two, but I think that the people you've mentioned kind of eclipse them by a wide margin. Indeed, indeed. No, there there are people on the left who are equally unapologetic, but they are um, usually. Uh, well, I mean, I mean, you're, I mean, you're familiar with them. They're unapologetic to the extent where they feel as though they are. And yeah, honestly, you know what? I really, I there is a there is a pretty easy comparison to those on the right. They're doing so in what they think is defense of the moral. Have you guys ever done opposition research on a politician, a Republican politician, and come away admiring that person? Um, I can admire gall, not just their shamelessness or their gall, but like coming from the angle that you do where you're, where you are looking for stuff that 
will be fodder for the campaign against them. Does it ever come up that someone is so clean and upstanding and admirable that you're like, well, we're going to have to beat this person on the issues? Uh, yes, actually, there was one time and it really took me a minute. I had to think about this. Um, we had been doing some work in New Jersey, working on behalf of Democrats for Democrats. It was an IE that you know just wanted to do a little bit of due diligence on someone. And we, we were so steeped in New Jersey lore, New Jersey myth, New Jersey everything, that when we were asked then to make the jump over to Utah on behalf, again, of, of an IE who wanted to make sure they were running the traps on some candidates for lieutenant governor, the change was so jarring. I mean, we went from, you know, looking into people who, when they joked about knowing where the bodies were buried, we weren't really sure they were joking, to a campaign where one of the most scandalous things that we found was that one of the candidates had a Starbucks account. And well, the reason for that is that he's in a Mormon state. He is a Mormon and Mormons uh, are not supposed to drink caffeine. (laughs) You have to catch up with a finger in the coffee. But, but I mean, still, I mean, we're talking about, you know, a Starbucks account. I mean, it's a, it's a caffeinated beverage to the majority of America. That is, that is just the way to start the day. It is not a reason to persecute anyone. Yeah, there have been perhaps one or two candidates, but it's, it's pretty infrequent. And let's be honest, that's, that's not unique to Republican candidates. People that run for office don't usually get to the ranks that they do by always taking the high ground. Sometimes you you take advantage of circumstances and situations as they as they come to you, and you know that I mean that's that is something that, that it, I think we require of our politicians and our leaders. So it's it's hard to necessarily come down on that from a moral standpoint all the time. I want to go back to the to the subject that you brought up about marrying into the business. <laughs> I, I have watched married couples run businesses together that they started at the same time. I've thought about enterprises with my wife and we both kind of conclude that might not work tremendously well, but how did you sort out roles and responsibilities and how do you not bring it home or did you bring it home and how did it work as a partnership while it was one? I think part of the reason it worked is because our jobs were so very separate I knew nothing about consulting for campaigns when I started the job. I knew a little bit about keeping things organized. I'd spent a lot of time in, in school and then in graduate school. So I knew a thing or two about you know, negotiation and making deadlines and what have you. And after you know, several, several years in the hospitality industry, I certainly knew something about customer service. But I think what made it especially um, comfortable for my husband and I is that especially in the first few weeks, I would walk into his office 10 times a day and say, okay, I need to make a decision about something. Do you have a preference between X and Y, A or B, one or two? And after a few of these questions, he finally just looked at me and said, can you just make the decision? At which point I realized he he wasn't interested in doing my job. I I stopped thinking of him as an employer and started thinking of, thinking of him more as a partner. And after that, I mean, you know, the great thing was there were, there were plenty of decisions that I made where in hindsight, maybe they weren't the best decisions, but he never held my feet to the fire over it. 
I mean, certainly to his credit, but it's also something that I, you kind of have to do if you're running a small business. You know, you're you're basically making it up as you go along. And I, I have several friends who are in the process of starting their own businesses right now, and they're doing that thing where they're coming to me asking the kind of questions that I asked my husband in the beginning. And the funny thing is, you just have to kind of jump in and make those decisions, and you will learn as you go, and you will absolutely make mistakes. But the more you succeed, the more comfortable you become making those decisions and living with the consequences, good or bad. I think that's part of the reason that that he and I worked together so well. When I started coming to him with new ideas about things, even, even as it related to how he was marketing our product and selling our product, there were a few years... Not long. I mean, I, I joined the firm in, in 2009, which was an absolutely appalling year economically for a lot of people, but especially, I think, for, for political consultants. First of all, it was an off year. It was an odd numbered year. So there was just very little work to be had. 2008 had been this, this epic banner year for Democrats. So we were all kind of resting on our laurels for a moment and the work kind of dried up. And you know, eventually I went to my husband and I was like, you know, one of the first things I said to him that I think he really took to heart and, and made a difference was, why are we marketing ourselves so affordably? I'm starting to notice that other people who provide our kind of service, who are routinely invited to speak at conferences about our particular expertise, you know, those people are charging significantly more. Are we just marketing ourselves as a bargain basement product in order to get more work. Basically, it was the the Hershey's versus Godiva model. Not to put too fine a point on it, he jacked up prices about 30%. And next thing you know, we're a luxury brand instead of, you know, you know, the affordable brand and, and people started to take note. You said you have friends starting businesses, but if you're talking about enterprises in the political space, what advice would you give to somebody who finds themselves at the helm of one, what's the best way, you know, whether they're starting it from scratch or coming into the leadership, what do you think are the lessons that you've learned about running a business in this particular arena? I mean, so many, (laughs) I think the big one is to kind of get buy-in from as many people as you can. When my husband left the firm, you know, we moved to DC immediately because that's where his next job uh, was waiting for him. And that provided me with an incredible opportunity to basically just hurl myself into the DC community. And so I called up everyone I could possibly name in the industry, people I'd never met before, people I'd never talked to before. I found email addresses, I found phone numbers, and I called up or emailed or texted everyone I could find and said, hey, listen, I'm an opposition researcher. I'm new to DC. I don't know the lay of the land. Can I take you out for a 30 minute coffee just to get your take on things? At least in democratic politics, on the Dem side of professional politics. And perhaps it was also my age and the fact that I'm an opposition researcher, right? Like I'm not a mail firm. I'm not a media firm. I'm not a digital firm. I'm not a pollster. There are very few opposition research shops in the country who work nationally. So number one, I wasn't really a threat to anyone. I showed up and just said, hey, I'm here to help. You know, If you demonstrate that you are here to work and you are here to help and you're not here to step on toes unless absolutely necessary, I think that is one way to really ingratiate yourself to people. But also what I was talking about, you know, getting the buy-in, when people feel as though they have helped you, even if it's just with a 30-minute coffee to give you perspective, 
apparently there are psychological studies showing that they now have a vested interest in you. And so they want to see you succeed. You know, at the very least, you're in the forefront of their mind. And I can't speak to how other people get their business politically, but, you know, as an opposition researcher, it is absolutely in my best interest to make sure that every mail vendor, media vendor, digital vendor, polling vendor, when they work with me, that I give them exactly what they need to look really good in front of their client. Because if I make them look good, they're going to keep recommending me for work. And at least in the political consulting hierarchy, opposition researchers are kind of a bottom rung of the ladder. So it is definitely in our best interest to make sure the people who spend 80% of the communications budget for a campaign know that I'm going to make them look good. I'm going to make sure they have their citations. I'm going to make sure they have all of their fact checks. I'm going to make sure that all of their their media production is is flawless and accurate and that you know the, the FEC can't sue them or tell them to take anything down or, or, or anything like that. So yeah, I mean, like making yourself available to to the other people in your industry, letting them know that you're not interested in in stepping on toes, that you're interested in doing the work and putting in the time. And I don't expect to be famous overnight, or I don't expect to be at the top of my field overnight. I'm here to do the work. That worked really, really well for me. And one final thing, I sort of affectionately refer to them as the feminist mafia. There was a group of women who were all about my age, call it, you know, 30 or so, 35, when I moved to DC, who we had all either recently started our own firm or just gotten our name on the door as a partner. And we were really, really anxious to prove that you know we were great bosses, great consultants, great operatives, but also great friends to other women. We wanted to make sure we were living our feminist progressive values. So there were a lot of women who immediately took me in. Oh, you know, Sonia, she's from Texas. You know, she's running her husband's firm. She could probably use some help. The DC feminist uh, community really, really took me in. And that was, that was a huge advantage. When you said get buy-in as a learning, I, I thought you were going to talk about getting buy-in from your staff not from the, the larger world. And of course, the larger world is very important. But did you have challenges or did you set out in the same way to win over the people that you worked with or did you need to? Or did they just come to uh, see that you were competent at what you did? And how did that work internally in establishing yourself? Yeah. So that's that's an interesting question. I think it helped that. Um, so my, my husband, who had founded the shop, had been doing this for ages and he was very, very good. He was very respected in the industry. That helped. And then when he left, um, he had trained up a VP who became my business partner, um, who is still the head of research. He, you know, I'm, I'm the managing partner. He's the research partner. I think the fact that he had learned everything from my husband, we knew that even without our founder, Rob would have the helm in terms of our, our you know, product quality control and Sonia would make sure that the light stayed on. But you know, as we've gone on from there, I think getting buy-in from our staff has been so easy because this is a mission that a lot of people care about. You know? um, and there are only so many opposition research shops in the country who do really, really well and who last for, for we are now in our 25th year of operation. That's we are, you know, great grandfatherly in the political consulting industry. And the fact that our founder left and the company didn't immediately evaporate into thin air, it's pretty impressive. So finding the right kind of talent wasn't was has never been difficult because people want to do this work. My job was to make sure that we provided them a place to do that work where they also felt appreciated and supported and encouraged. 
I find it very, very easy. <laughs> we, we pay a decent wage. We give people time off when they need it. We give them very, very flexible hours. Basically, we say, as long as you hit your deadline, you're welcome to do the work when you're comfortable doing it. There are situations where, you know, sometimes there's an internal problem and we need to, we have a hair on fire thing where we need all hands on deck. But for the most part, you know, people all work from home. They're allowed to take their vacations when they choose. We've always provided health insurance for everyone. It's not difficult to take care of employees. That's something I struggle with in terms of corporate America these days. <laughs> you talked about this whole sequence of 30 minute coffees or whatever was you were doing to network into the, to the world of political consultancies. I've talked to a lot of founders or heads of small enterprises in the space who find that kind of effort really hard, mostly on a personality basis. If they show up at an event, they want to stand on the side and they don't want to sh schmooze people. They're not comfortable selling. You had some experience and it seems like I'm kind of gathering that you have something of the personality that's more comfortable with that. But is that true? Did it come naturally well, Absolutely. To you? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. The person you just described is my business partner. He is a brilliant researcher. He is extraordinary at connecting dots and building narratives and churning out research at, a, at, a, at an astounding, truly breathtaking rate. But you put him in a social situation with other political operatives and he doesn't especially want to be there. It's just not his natural sort of space. And I think that's part of the reason why he and I have such a great working relationship and why, you know, the company has done pretty well under our leadership. You know, I spent, like I said, a lot of, a lot of my young life in the hospitality industry. And that means learning to talk to absolutely everyone and anyone and not simply engaging with them, but actually hearing what they say. That works to, to two advantages. One, people feel like you're actually listening to them, which is, you know, sends a nice little hit of dopamine to their brain. But two, you'll learn a whole lot about your industry, about what's going on in, you know, in the political landscape, about what's happening at the committees, about, about who's happy and who's not and who's thinking about running. That is my real true value, I think, to my company. Yeah, you would never want to see me do research. I could do it. I'd be fine at it. But I am far better utilized making sure that you know, we have the clients that we need. We've got enough work to keep all of our staff busy, making sure, you know, that our clients are happy and have what they need and are getting the best possible advice. But you're absolutely right. The political consulting set, I would say, especially opposition researchers, don't particularly want to be networking and rubbing elbows and talking shop in big public settings. You mentioned this sort of hierarchy of political consultants. And I remember when I was considering or starting to set up a, a political software company that I talked to the executive director at the DCCC at the time, and he was telling me, Matt Engel, he was telling me about that hierarchy and he, he kind of put media consultants at the top. He said, you know, and they had the social skills and the presentation of self to kind of command the larger dollars. And he kind of went down that to like, fundraising consultants, people like that lower down. The benefit to me at coming in even below that probably at the time with software was that it wasn't very contested, similar to what you, you saying, there aren't that many shops. But the downside, I think, as a political consultant to that advantage is that you don't get to participate in the strategic as much as you would 
at a higher level? Do you ever feel like I wish I were running a different kind of consultancy that was more in the room in the decision making on a campaign? Or are you pretty happy where you've found yourself? So as an opposition researcher, I have found that I can be as plugged in as I want to be. One of the things that we tell our clients is that we know our lane, like we know what you're hiring us to do. We know what our role is, but we still want to be in the room, even if it's just in the background so that we can be kept abreast of where your head's at and what kind of decisions you're thinking about making so that we can make sure you're not making any unforced errors, right? Like if this is the narrative you want to run with, cool, I'm not going to tell you not to, unless I think you're being an absolute idiot. And that does happen. But, but that's why I want to be in the room. And that's why I ask to be in the room. It's mostly just so that I can make sure my clients are staying between the ditches. There have been some campaigns where I have been very, very much not just the, the, the opposition research consultant, but the senior advisor to the candidates. And then there are races where, you know, after we have sent them the book, they, they literally thank us and send us on their way. They don't need anything else from us. Given the volume of work that we do every year and every cycle, I don't mind there, that there are some campaigns who require less of us than others. We are not like the media people. We don't get a huge chunk. We make our business in volume. So we have to work for a lot of people. If I don't bring in anywhere between you know three to a dozen new clients every month, we don't make it. And that's a lot of conference calls to be sitting on you know, one, you know, every week. So I appreciate that there are races where I am more involved. I also appreciate there are races where, particularly at some of the higher levels where I know they have got really, really weapons-grade guidance. You know, as long as I'm in the loop and I, and I get to see everything before it goes out and I know what kind of decisions are being made, I don't necessarily need to have the input because I know that they're, they're getting really, really good input from their other consultants. What do you think is the biggest misconception about the opposition research world? <sighs> well, <laughs> um, it's just so, so very many. But I think the biggest one, and this is something that I actually ran into recently on a pitch, is that we are not private investigators. Opposition research operates in the space of publicly available records. And, you know, as we've already discussed, public record has become huge in the last several years, what with everyone having a camera on their phone, everyone having a video on their phone, everyone being able to provide their own content, you know, day in and day out, more publications, more blogs, more podcasts. There is so very much public record. But when somebody says things like, well, I heard candidate X is actually a homewrecker and that's why this guy over here got divorced. And I really want to say that about her during the campaign. Like, Buddy, there's a reason I operate in publicly available records. <laughs> we are not scandal. We are not, you know, house of cards. You know, we are in the business of making the best possible case for you and the worst possible case for your opponent based on publicly available records. And when people want me to go and take pictures of people through their windows at night or start digging through garbage, I have to sort of point out that that is not what I do. Are there other people who do? I'm sure there are, but it is not good practice. It's certainly not best practice. And there's a reason for that. If you want that backsplash on you, then delve into the realm of, of non-publicly available records. It's a really, really easy way for your opponent to point a finger at you and say, you're the reason people hate politics. This is dirty. This is underhanded. This is slimy. And it's none of your business. 
The great thing about public records is that society at large realizes that they're public. And so when they are told something horrible, like, hey, candidate X was arrested six times last year for public intoxication or, or drunkenness or drunken disorderly, those are records that we all agree should be available to the public. It's in the public's best interest. When you start talking about, you know, well, you know, they sent their child to gay conversion therapy, that's not a public record for a reason. No, if it comes out, if it manages to make it into the public record, if someone reports on it or someone admits to it in an interview and it gets published, that's different. But I am not the vehicle to get that information for precisely that reason. I don't want it to blow back on my client, have, have him look bad, nor do I have any interest in spending 18 months in minimum security prison. And that is, I think, probably the biggest misconception about opposition research. And Lord knows the lines get blurred the deeper we get into this weird era of, of shameless politics. It's the most common misconception, I think. I guess you've had an interesting lens into our politics for an, a bunch of cycles now. What do you think you know about American politics and the way it's conducted that the average close observer doesn't? That is such a good question. You know, the funny thing is we spend so much of our time trying to imagine how the public actually sees things, how the public perceives things, that um, I'm not even sure I can give you a good answer to that. Um, all right, let me think about this. What do what do I see that I, that the average American voter doesn't see? I think it might just be the sheer amount of time and money and resources required to get these elections done. And I know that we sort of talk about that. You know, plenty of articles have been written about money in politics, especially dark money in politics. But I also feel like journalism has done a pretty good job of shining a spotlight on all that, particularly of late, particularly as, you know, more and more scandals come out and more and more money gets shoved at problems. I think it might just be the amount of work and the amount of effort that goes into getting a candidate across the finish line. It really is a a round the clock year round operation. Do you pay any attention to the opposition research on the other side? the Republican side, do you know like how they do it? Do you think there's any difference between what Republicans do and Democrats do? You know, funny you should ask that question. In the last few years, I have had a stunning number of Republican operatives come to me and say, hey, I know you're on the D side, but would you be willing to work in a Republican primary? I've got a moderate candidate. We're running against a crazy right wing hardliner. I need to take him out. Because, you know, because, you know, we can't have more of these people in line. And I ask, why? Why are you coming to me? Surely there are opposition researchers on the right. And at least, at least four separate operatives have given me almost the same identical answer. The right doesn't like to muddy the waters with details or facts. They already know what they want to say. There is not really a need to to do deep dives on people. They already have the line of attack ready to go. It's a little hair raising. It, it fits into, I mean, I don't know if that's, it's entirely true, uh, you know, from those examples, but it's, it fits with a, with sort of the prejudice that we have about what's going on over there and how divorced from reality they've become. I mean, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm comfortable speaking to that exactly, although I don't know that I disagree with you. I think it's just that there isn't a lot of call for it. Um, 
And I do know, I know at least two opposition research shops on the right. I do a lot of work in Republican primaries for more moderate candidates. It's not as, there's not as much of a call for it. Why did you start your super PAC and uh, how's it going? It's going well. This is the second time I've run this particular pack. We started it in 2018, uh, obviously, to go after Ted Cruz. And, you know, we kind of just had some fun at his expense, raised a good bit of money, not a ton. We had enough to to run an ad that went super, super viral and definitely caught Ted's attention. It got featured on the John Oliver show. We were really proud of that. So how much did you raise and what was the ad? It was the Come On Ted ad with uh, with Sonny sitting at his local diner and talking about saw an ad, you know, about Ted Cruz, tough as Texas. And he chuckles and he goes, I don't know, man, if, if somebody called my wife a dog and said my daddy was in on the Kennedy assassination, I don't know that I'd be out there kissing his ass. It went delightfully viral. Like I said, it was featured on the John Oliver show. We got under his skin for sure, but obviously it wasn't enough to, to close the gap for, for Beto. But uh, something that I've noticed over the last couple of years, you know, Beto lost that race by less than three points. The margins between R's and D's in the, in the following cycles were much, much larger. And the truth of the matter is, you know, when it comes to turnout, you know, Democrats have tried everything, right? We, we've tried waiting for the perfect candidate with the right coattails. We've tried registering an entirely new electorate. We have thrown so much money at ads. And year after year, we just, we keep getting our teeth kicked in. But, you know, as you and I have discussed with Donald Trump pushing the party further and further to the right, and Texas in particular, just really helping to lead that charge, there is a sense that there is a moderate middle that isn't voting along with the Democrats simply because their distaste for what is happening in the Republican Party isn't strong enough. So the question that I am posing with my super PAC is what exactly, what in the name of Christmas do these moderate voters need to hear come out of a Democrat's mouth in order for them to consider voting for them? And that is not a question that Texas Democrats are especially good at asking. Partly, you know, it's not our fault. We have 25 years of getting our teeth kicked in, you know, as our history. We don't know how to win. We haven't done it in so long. It is perfectly understandable that when we decide to run, we don't run as who we are. We run as who we aren't, which is to say we aren't Ted Cruz. We aren't Ken Paxson. We aren't Dan Patrick. We aren't Greg Abbott. I think that there are some people in the middle who, if we were able to say this is who we actually are, and talk about things that are not necessarily these culture war flash bombs. And not to say that they're not important, but you know, far more people are interested in where their next meal is coming from. Will they be able to pay their rent or mortgage? And will my child get shot at school today than are worried about drag shows? Do we have a candidate that can carry that banner? I think we do. I don't know um, Colin Allred or Mr. Gutierrez at all. I know some of their team members, you know, I've certainly seen their products and their their communications and all that kind of stuff. But I think that that's part of the reason why my PAC's work is so important right now, because we're going to be focusing on finding out the why. That's what we want to do. And we're not going to do it just this one cycle. Something that Texas Democrats have to figure out is that this, we cannot be like a one and done operation. We have to start building on information that we collect over multiple cycles. It's exactly what the Republicans did 25 years ago. So if we start doing this research now, if we start doing the research into what voters need to hear come out of a Democrat's mouth, if we start it now, then 
by 2024, when whoever it is that runs against Ted Cruz runs, maybe they have some good insight. But by 2026, when it's time for all the statewide Republicans to run for re-election again, or, or the new ones to come and take over the, the mantle, I look forward to making the information that I find available to any Democrat who wants to run in Texas so that we can start to move the needle a little bit. I've read one or two other things about you online. Is there anything you want to bring up? Anything else that you're up to in this, in the context of this interview? Oh, in the context of this interview, what do I want to talk about? Um, no, uh, I mean, there was that one time when I volunteered to go live on another planet for the rest of my life. What's the current status on that? I, I, I mentioned it to my 84-year-old father, and he said, don't sign me up. You know, I, I can't say I blame him. Actually, it's it's kind of been an exciting ride. So obviously, the Mars One Project, which is what I'm referring to, didn't find the traction it was looking for. It had kind of a false start. Captured a lot of attention. It was really, really fun. It was some of the best media training of my life. But it didn't, it didn't find purchase. And, and that's okay, because enough people paid attention to it, that the storytelling became its own story. And as it happens, I think that there is now discussion with some pretty major production companies about doing a sort of limited series on the Mars One project, um, which I would love to see. Would you be part of that? Uh, if, they, if they asked me to. I was always only just a volunteer for the organization. Um, but I was really, really excited to hear that there had been some interest and they were thinking about, you know, kind of making some deals happen. This doesn't mean that opposition research is so grinding and painful that you'd rather flee to another planet. You know, it's really funny. So many, so many jokes were made about like wanting to die on another planet, wanting to flee this planet. And I, I look at it as the exact opposite. It was always, always just about boldly going. You know, taking the next giant leap, doing the next great thing, setting our sights on the horizon just to see what the hell is out there. I'm very excited to see that they're they're back and moving again and that, you know, something might be happening there. Is that your general attitude? In, I mean, like I was on a call Zoom last night with three women that I have known since first grade, and we were talking about AI. And one of them who lives in Palo Alto is extremely excited about the positive impacts on humanity and just sees amazing labor saving and sees so many positive opportunities coming out of this new development in technology. Another of my friends whose outlook I think is natively a little different sees all the things to worry about. Where do you put yourself on that spectrum generally, you know, in your work and, and in your life? Oh, I mean, generally speaking, I think I'm definitely on the glass half full side, particularly when there is such an obvious benefit to society. I have a lot of thoughts about AI, but generally speaking, you know, I, I, I got into politics because I wanted to bring ammunition to the good fight. You know, like that's my role. I make sure that the good guys have the ammunition that they need. When I was thinking about, you know, getting to Mars and living on Mars and, and doing all of that, it was always about what are we going to learn? What are we going to learn about space travel and space flight? What are we going to learn about the effect of space on the human body? What are we going to learn about our solar system? What are we going to learn about, you know, closed loop recycling? I mean, there's like all I could think of is all the stuff we were going to learn. And yes, it was going to be painful and probably short lived. But I mean, what a way to go, you know? Have you 
investigated bringing AI into your processes? Because it seems like without knowing your business intimately, it seems like there are areas which that kind of technology could shortcut some processes and make things easier, or maybe even in time uncover things that you wouldn't anyway. Absolutely. There's absolutely no question that AI is going to revolutionize opposition research, to say nothing of of politics at large. Right now, however, uh, it is still very much in its infancy. We have definitely done some work with AI. We've tried out some things. We see Right now, we see it as a tool, for sure. But it is going to be a very, very long time before AI you know, puts me out of business. It needs entirely too much structure and too much guidance. And it's sort of like the internet, you know? Like, there's, there's a lot of great stuff that comes from it, and there's a lot of truly miserable miserable stuff that that comes from that space. It's just a question of of how you decide to use it. There's no question that that AI is going to save everyone in my line of work a lot of time and a lot of energy and a lot of hassle over the next few years. Sonia, is there a question I should have asked you that I didn't? Why do you do it? Okay. Why do you do it? You know, it's funny. I moved to Texas more than 20 years ago to go to graduate school because I thought that I was going to be changing the world. I thought I would go work for an IGO or an NGO. I thought I was going to do my part to end sex trafficking in Eastern Europe. And then I just stayed in Texas and I got into Texas democratic politics, which is is not an act of self-care at all. It is a hard uphill pride swallowing siege every day. And it used to be that I was a Texas Democrat. Now I'm a Texas Democrat with fewer voting rights. And less control over my own internal organs. And the longer I'm here, the more I realize I didn't want to come to Texas. And there are plenty of things that I don't like about being here. But now I am here. And I don't care that I'm at a disadvantage. There's nothing that these people are ever going to do that makes me think it's no longer worth it to fight. And that's something I guess I should thank Texas for, because you want to talk about making a person really resilient, watching the Texas legislature work has just made me realize that as long as I can, I've got to be out here doing the work and fighting the fight for the people who can't, who don't have the time, who don't have the resources, who don't have the opportunity, who are too busy just trying to make a wage and feed their children. Well, I'm old enough to remember when Texas was Democratic and when Lloyd Benson and Ann Richards could represent the state, the statewide electorate there. And so the worm does turn went the other way, but it can come back and it does take. Hurry up, worm. (laughs) (laughs) Hurry up. Worms hear that all the time, I think. Mm -hmm. But um, I'm glad you're in the fight and appreciate your efforts out there. Anything else you want to say? I think I'm good. It was really fun. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. That was Sonia. She is at opresearch.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.